You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. This is going to be a special one. This is something different for us. Uh, welcoming to the podcast, Dr. Darren Nash, the Chief Science Consultant for Apple TV Plus's Prehistoric Planet. Season one was out last year. Season two is just out now. First, just a, just a big welcome, Darren. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. It's, it's great to talk to you, Chris. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, yeah now... It, if if you don't do- know about Dr. Nash, wow! I mean the 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 CV on him is is fantastic. I I wrote down here when you know you have your own Wikipedia page as a scientist, you you know you've made it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so congrats on that. That's Thanks. something I'm I'm striving for. But again, author of multiple books, uh, consulting on projects like Alien Worlds, that was fantastic. I, that's a personal favorite of mine. He's a podcaster too, the the Tetrapod Zoology podcast. I I was just listening to your frogs episode, so we'll chat a little bit about that. Good. Yeah, but you know, also, you know, contributing to the Prehistoric Planet podcast, which I just just started listening to these last few days, which is fantastic. He was a faculty member at the University of Southampton for a number of years. Very impressive, Darren. Just as we open up a podcast with a guest we always like to kind of figure out you know ask you your background as a kid we're all fascinated with dinosaurs i think most of us i i guarantee you most of our listeners are around the world how did you take that passion or when did that passion start for you and how did that lead up to you being coming the the chief science consultant for this groundbreak documentary on dinosaurs yeah, I get, I get asked this a lot. I think about it a lot. And my life story is, you know, ever since I was a little kid, I've always been obsessed with animals. Like the animals are my sort of main, main interest. And so I was always determined, you know, from childhood, I, I am going to study animals. I'm going to be a zoologist. I'm primarily a naturalist. I'm a natural historian. I am as much an advocate of like, you know, looking at tadpoles and finding bugs in grass as I am thinking about, you know, the lifestyles of sauropods and giant pterosaurs and whatnot. So I always wanted, as I sort of, you know, through my school and college 
career to like increasingly specialize on the life sciences, get into zoology. But I was at the same time interested in the animals of the past. You know, they're always there. You know, they're, they're, this is a really important thing. These animals are always there for many people that aren't necessarily, you know, thinking about science from the start. Dinosaurs and other prehistoric animals are in some sense a gateway to a, a broader interest in, in science of the natural world. But I didn't grow up as like, I'm going to be a dinosaur guy as like a, as like an adult. I uh, I wanted to be a zoologist and uh, I came to the point in university where do I go through uh, biology and increasingly towards like you know behavior ecology etc of living animals or do I actually veer more towards the life sciences and end up in paleontology and for various complex and long-winded reasons I did end up going to the earth sciences route and specialize in paleontology but once I was in there, once I actually started on a, a master's degree and then I did an MPhil degree before I did a PhD, I uh, did get to specialize on Cretaceous dinosaurs. And that's ultimately what I became associated with academically. So, so it's roots in natural history for me. And I think that is kind of why I'm in the position that I am with respect to prehistoric planet. Oh, the, it's, it's amazing. And, and I can only imagine, you know, the, the excitement putting this together i i've listened like i said i've listened to the the prehistoric planet podcast and and john favreau and and the other producers talking about making this documentary it is like something i've never seen i mean we and, and you're hearing that in the in the media i heard this a year ago like wow you have to see this and it wasn't until I, I i just did an interview with the big beast producers tom hugh jones and bill markham and i and i went out and subbed to apple tv plus i was like okay i'm gonna get a subscription and then came across do you want to talk to Darren Dr. Darren Nation and I was like oh heck yeah and I started watching it I guess if you could just talk about the creative process that or, or, or how you got involved with it I honestly feel like the way the creators and producers I'm trying to put this into words it's like you went back in time and you're filming these animals and and the behaviors that I want to get into a little bit and the, the the physiology that has changed so much in the last two decades how did that how did you get involved with this project it, it, it's it's an incredible series it's an incredible series As there's so many points to, to pick up on there really i mean um uh our executive one of our two executive producers that's that's john favreau and mike gunton so mike gunton mike is behind those famous David Attenborough-led TV series like Planet Earth, Blue Planet, etc. And so you have to think of Prehistoric Planet as first and foremost, and Mike says this all the time, it's a natural history show about dinosaurs, which kind of makes us different from many things that have been made about extinct dinosaurs before. They primarily are a bunch of people are interested in dinosaurs. How do we tell the dinosaur story? And as they're doing that, as they're showing you a CG T-Rex, then they're saying, how can we infuse a little bit of biology ecology into that? We are kind of approaching it, given that it's made by uh, the BBC Natural Unit for Apple TV+. Plus. We are saying that, you know, this is a natural history show first and foremost. So what do you see in a natural history show? So yeah, first and foremost, it's a natural history show with dinosaurs. And, and Mike and our series producer, Tim Walker, they have they have coined this new sort of subgenre, time traveling natural history. So that, that's kind of mm -hmm. what we're all about. In terms of my personal involvement, well, this is in order to raise the required funds and interest and get the right team of people together. You know, it's a long running process. I know that Mike and others were, you know, working on this for sort of like you know ten years prior to mm -hmm. 
prior to like 2018, 2019, when we really got started. And they basically spoke to everybody involved in um, Cretaceous research because we, prehistoric planet seasons one and two are specialized on animals of the late Cretaceous. They went and spoke to everyone in that world. And they ended up using nearly everyone in, the, in, in, in that world in kind of some capacity. But as their sort of primary go-to person that they're going to talk to on a day-to-day basis, because I'm deeply embedded in the whole process of making Prehistoric Planet, you need to be someone who, yeah, you know prehistoric animals, you know Cretaceous animals, but you also yeah, have this grounding in natural history and know about animal behavior and animal diversity and how animals fit into their environments and, and, and so on and so forth. And uh, those things are kind of like my strength. So that's ultimately why I was... Uh, used uh, more than than other people but they they were used as well we used expertise across the board from you know many different relevant experts so yeah I, what a what a trip i mean it's a <laughs> it's an absolute dream project and yeah, yeah if i the the take home is it feels different because it's a natural history show with dinosaurs it's not here's some dinosaurs fighting or eating or whatever in an environment it's it's got more depth to it than that it comes from the same people that made the natural history documentaries that are, that are the most popular and the best in the world. Oh, it, it's groundbreaking and it, it's, it's it changing. You will never look at another age of dinosaur documentary again, uh, unless it's at this level. I mean, the, the, I mean, okay, so let's get into it. I, it it's, I started off. So the other night, you know, uh, once I got the, I, I got my subscription. So I sit down, I'm like, okay, I'm gonna start with season one. I'm going to binge watch this. And the, the first one I'm watching a T-Rex swim. And I'm sitting here writing, okay, this is a question for Darren. Number one, how in the heck is a T-Rex swimming? This massive beast that I've seen since I was a kid that's 30 tons or whatever it is. I've seen Sue the at the Florida Natural History Museum years ago. And and I know the story because I, I did my research and, and listened to some of your podcasts. But where is that evidence that a T-Rex could swim? It was amazing sequence. It is beautiful it was it was gorgeous with the the young ones and and the dad so what's the evidence there i guess in the fossil record that 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 might be possible i mean a a huge number of sequences that we show uh, the fossil record is very rarely gives us you know the exact information we would want on animals animals lives uh finding direct evidence that they did anything is really hard there's 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 evidence that they ate things there's evidence that they pooped that they you know, made made eggs and and babies and whatnot, obviously. But in terms of the the day to day things they were capable of, we have to think now. Now, let me say backtrack a little bit for a continue there. We do have to use the the fossil record as our primary guide, but we then have to think: what do living animals do? And of the things that living animals do, which of those would be applicable to these extinct ones? Well, Tyrannosaurus rex is a theropod dinosaur. This group of animals is not extinct. Birds are a subset of theropod dinosaurs, as you know. And that whole group of animals, theropods, including birds, they can swim. All of them can swim. Uh, the theropod body shape inherited by birds. You know, you think about the birds today that are most, air quotes, theropod-like. Birds are theropods. That, co- that comment doesn't make sense. But the ones that are most like dinosaurs, like T-Rex, so let's say ostriches, emus, etc., they're great swimmers. I mean, you know, anyone who knows anything about those birds is aware of cases where they've been seen swimming, sometimes, sometimes in the sea, sometimes across distance. Uh, direct evidence from the fossil record that extinct theropods were swimmers comes from uh, claw marks left on the bottom of 
left on mud that's on the floors of lakes and rivers and, and coasts and so on. There's every reason to think that these animals were, you know, totally capable swimmers. Again, look at the living world. Who doesn't swim? There isn't any animal that can't swim. There, there are actually like a list of animals that in the literature it's sometimes claimed they can't swim. And those all turn out to be myths that all those animals can swim. It's been said that camels, rhinos, pigs can't swim. Not true. Every, everybody can swim. This story actually originated from a broader take-home point about Tyrannosaurus rex, a really interesting thing about it, which is that when it's alive, latest Cretaceous, that final part of the late Cretaceous called the Maastrichtian, and specifically it's in the late Maastrichtian, so it's around for a couple of million years, it occurs on this long, narrow continent that stretches from Mexico in the south to Alaska in the north. It's called Laramidia. And Tyrannosaurus rex, the species, is basically distributed across the whole length of that continent. And therefore, it was, we know from the environments we have preserved, you know, on in Laramidian sediments, Tyrannosaurus rex was a habitat generalist. It wasn't an animal that just lived in, you know, just dense woodlands or just semi-arid rocky deserts. It's everywhere. It's on beaches, it's mangroves, it's coasts, it's tropical forests, it's cooler, kind of like open, semi-open, semi-deserts and, and such across this range. Look at large predators that fit that general scheme today. They're habitat generalists, they're widespread. You'll be thinking straight away of animals like, you know, various of the big cats, wolves. I mean, none of them are precise analogues for T-Rex. Of course, T-Rex is more like a giant bird, but those animals can all do all these things. They can make a living here, they can make a living there. And one of the things they all do is opportunistically, they will forage. Nothing like, not, they're not aquatic, they're not semi-aquatic, but they will all forage at the water's edge. They will make swims, sometimes considerable swims. I'm sure you know about these cases where tigers have like swam out to sea for a couple of kilometers to get people in boats even, or to get to islands. Mm -hmm. Totally, you should be imagining T-Rex in that way. So yeah, it's a combination of all those things. There is some factual basis for this. There's the general demeanor and anatomy of T-Rex. And there's what we expect from big animals that are ecologically like T-Rex. So, yeah, it it was that sequence. I'm just like, whoa, okay, you know, right off the bat, this is going to be a different series on dinosaurs and not something you see in Jurassic Park and and all those things. And I, and I, I have a question and I, I'm going to bring it forward because it, it really is. I was actually kind of going to ask it towards the end, but I think maybe it's important we put it up front. And I think it was in the prehistoric planet podcast, and you talked about evolutionary reset. Fascinating idea. That's the first time I heard it. And again, I know before we got started, I'm, you know, evolution, evolutionary biology, I'm fascinated with and I want to learn more about. But this mass, the, the fifth mass extinction we had 66 million years ago. And, and you were talking about it in a sense that, you know, dinosaurs, all of these animals had 160 million years to evolve some very complex behaviors, very complex physiology. And, and then you have this massive extinction event and it resets the button because today we think, oh, I, the way you said it, and maybe you can expand upon that, like we're more advanced today, but you go, wait a minute, dinosaurs were probably just as advanced, if not more, right? Yeah, yeah. There's, there's there's quite a bit to unpack here, and I'll try and keep it brief. Yeah, this, yeah uh, <laughs> no, well, no, no. no it's, it's, the, the subject is is fascinating. So, 
There's a lot of stereotypes about dinosaurs, but also about animals from the past in general. And a primary stereotype, which is really hard to shake, even among those of us that are scientifically trained, is that these animals, and imagine I'm saying this in air quotes, it's not a genuine quote, they hadn't yet evolved certain behaviors, certain features that we associate with the living world, that, make the, that makes the living world and its you know, animals and plants and other organisms so complex. There's this idea that they wouldn't have done that because that would have only evolved recently. So they're kind of prototype creatures. That's the sort of stereotype that we're still pushing back against. And, you know, prehistoric planet gives us a chance to say that, that is almost certainly completely wrong. It, for starters, every stereotype about dinosaurs that they might be kind of you know, primitive or blocky or kind of prototypical lumpy animals fundamentally contradicted by every bit of evidence we we have what we have known for a long time and what is becoming increasingly clear the more fossils we get the, the especially the you know the real high quality ones to say skin preserved and where we can look at bone growth in section all that kind of stuff and you know obviously this is improving the more advanced our technology becomes these animals are so I don't like to use the. I don't like to use the word "designed" as a biologist, but they're so beautifully designed. They've evolved to such a level of complexity that it's almost like you look at some of these animals. The level of detail and complexity. Th these look like animals from the future. It's not like dinosaurs mm. are not like animals of the past. And I think we show in prehistoric planet. That's how you should be thinking of dinosaurs and the other animals of their time. They're they're as advanced air quotes again around that that's as advanced if not more so they're, they're in some ways more air quotes sophisticated than mm -hmm. living animals i think part of the reason that dinosaurs this also goes for the marine reptiles and the flying reptiles the pterosaurs that lived alongside them part of the reason they're so they're so sort of enthralling to us they're so fantastic is because they go above and beyond what many living animals do you know we mammals and the other mammals we're great i've got nothing against mammals but it's like in some ways, mammals and certain other animal groups haven't done things as well, air quotes, right, as as dinosaurs did. It's why dinosaurs have like, you know, all these phenomenal predatory adaptations that haven't evolved in mammals. Like lions and big cats, they got conical teeth. That's a terrible design. Mm -hmm. You should have blade-shaped serrated teeth, which is what all the predatory dinosaurs have. That's just one example that these animals, dinosaurs and their kin, yeah, we should be reframing how we imagine them. Now, Briefly, let me just wrap this up. That fits into a broader view of how we look at evolutionary history across time. Because again, if you think back to what I just said about animals of the past being regarded as kind of prototype, sort of half-evolved animals, mm -hmm. that fits into a view of the world that's been really common in science in general, that complexity in life has increased over time. Now, to a degree, that's obviously true. That's totally affirmed by every piece of evidence that we have, but the most recent studies show that life reached uh, a very dense complexity, basically equivalent to that of, the, of, of today, like mm. a couple of hundred million years ago. So over the past couple of hundred million years, and for those of you that, you know, don't know the geological record of your head, off the top of your head, that means that involves the whole of the so-called age of dinosaurs. Across the whole of that time frame, life is at a level of complexity at which it is today. Uh, so ecosystems, like you know, functioning in ecosystems, interactions between organisms, symbiosis, you know, all these things, all that stuff has been basically like that of today, throughout the whole of the age of dinosaurs, but we lack a lot of the 
direct fossil evidence for it because just a lot of it isn't preserved. So mm-hmm. without any doubt, just one example, without any doubt, there were tropical rainforests in the age of dinosaurs. There's no question, like for loads of reasons, loads of complex reasons to do with like, you know, the genetics of living groups and the distributions mm-hmm. of living groups and so on, um, and climate modeling and so on. But do we have actual you know, fossils of all the organisms mm-hmm. in rainforests? No, because they just don't, don't preserve. So yeah. there would have been a complexity in the Cretaceous and beforehand in the Jurassic and the Triassic too, like that of today. And most of it was destroyed. So, you know, this, thanks to this major mass extinction event 66 million years ago. So, yeah, it's like dinosaurs of the Jurassic and Cretaceous, they were at this incredible level of complexity and lots of that complexity was lost, meaning that the survivors then kind of have to start from, well, I don't want to say start from scratch because they themselves are already sophisticated animals with long evolutionary histories, but this complexity in ecosystems and this things like large body size and mm-hmm. and, and uh, complex behavioral and ecological adaptations they have to start from small ancestors that are the, the few that survived the extinction event hence this reset term which uh john favreau actually used that in one of the podcasts and we've been uh, t- t- borrowed borrowed that from him ever since so uh, mm-hmm. so yeah yeah a, a complex view of the world which is in accord <laughs> with, with modern studies yeah on diversity over time. Well, and taking that, that idea of complexity, because so then I'm thinking, you know, the, the behaviors that you display in the, like you said, in, in past dinosaur documentaries, they're lumbering along. Oh, here's a T-Rex chasing a triceratops. Like I've seen it a million times, right. Or now Jurassic park or world or whatever movies out lately, you know, velociraptors, which I want to get to in a minute you know, chasing people around or whatever. But now you're showing behaviors, courtship behaviors, parenting behaviors. So like you said, the fossil record's difficult, but but like you said, with T-Rex swimming, there is some evidence of that. The one that really got me too was the parenting, like you mentioned it, like the cassowary, the, the dads involved with parenting. So what are some of the... You, you display that so wonderful in in this series. So take that thought with those complex behaviors and 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 model that in some of these dinosaurs. I guess what were some of the species you were using as examples, and then what do we know in the fossil record that yeah they actually were good parents? Mm. Yeah. Um, so again, in keeping with the idea that um, dinosaurs and other animals at the time were you know were were behaviorally complex. There's many features of their of their anatomy that show straight away that certain rules. I'm way overusing air quotes, you know, throughout this interview. Mm-hmm. I apologize for that, but um, yeah, there's certain rules that kind of apply in the natural world, in the living world, and if you see them in an extinct animal, it's like that rule has got to apply there as well. So one of the things that for me is a major take home about non-bird dinosaurs. Is and it's true for pterosaurs as well. They were flamboyant animals. They were very showy beasts, and we've got every indication from what we know about their sensory abilities, the size of their eyes, how visual information was processed in the brain, and so on. Every indication they were showy animals. They were very bird-like in this respect. So when you look at how birds and also lizards and crocodilians and other related you know, reptile groups as well, these animals 
do a lot of showy off type stuff. You know, they wiggle their arms and shake their heads and shimmy their tails and all this kind of stuff. And there's this often kind of regimental body language. It is absolutely, absolutely key and correct that you must incorporate that into our vision of dinosaurs. That also goes hand in hand with their reproduction, their parenting, because again, there are these kind of rules. If, for example, you have got a species where we think there's sexual dimorphism, we think males and females look different, we think males are these giant showy beasts where females are kind of like less adorned, less magnificent, that shows us, based on the rules of the living world, that the females are going to be the ones that are choosing the males. They're selecting males based on their you know, genetic potential, and that then tells you something direct about their reproductive style. That's probably a style where the male gets to mate with numerous females that choose him and the female is the one that looks after the, the babies. So we've got these kinds of rules and the direct evidence that we have from uh, dinosaur reproduction, of course, is eggs and babies, of which we have, I probably am not wrong in saying millions. It's certainly tens of thousands. There's there's a vast record of, of eggs and nests and babies now at this point. And they show such things as parents out on top of egg-filled nests, parents forming nesting colonies, juveniles staying in the nest or at least in the nest environment. Yeah, all of these kind of like sort of there's complex evidence for parenting styles present throughout all different dinosaur groups. Now, one of the things that's really interesting uh, in particular about many extinct dinosaurs is that profound sexual dimorphism that I just mentioned actually often isn't present. They're actually in many of these species, males and females are similarly adorned. And what does that mean? Well, that means that whatever the boys are doing, the girls are doing it as well. And that also means that you could have a system, as you do in some living animals, it's not tremendously common in the living world, but it, it could be a system where males and females are contributing equally to parenting, or as in cassowaries, as you mentioned, it could be that the males are actually the primary carers of nests and eggs and, and babies and there's direct evidence that that was the case in at least some of these animals. And for that reason, we wanted to get it into prehistoric planet. So there's, I always have to be stopped. Darren, stop talking because there is so much, there is so no, much of this stuff awesome. to cover. But I could talk to you for days, let's be honest. You know, I could just sit here all day and chat about it. I know we don't have that kind of time, but um, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because again, to talk about this documentary or this film, because it feels like a documentary. It's telling the stories of, of, of this though. So it's not just, oh, we know T-Rex did this and it's, it's, it's narrated again. I should have opened it for anybody that hasn't listened to it, uh, by, by Sir David Attenborough. So it's, it's always a pleasure to, to listen to his voice on a documentary or a film and you tell stories. It's, it's, you're telling the story of the family. You're telling the story of, of the colony and, and, and it's, 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 it's phenomenal. So. How much have you were you involved with some of that as the science advisor? Because it's it's beautiful filmmaking and and the stories are they do have you on the edge of your seat. Yeah, um, I mean, natural history TV shows. There's various different approaches you can take to how you inform the public, how you tell them uh, something really cool that you that you want to convey, and filmmakers have have learned there's no question about this it's now well studied in fact by by academics that storytelling is the primary way that you get people to remember you know they remember a narrative 
and therefore they will almost accidentally remember the kind of key facts. So, you know, those of us interested in science, we know full well, we want to tell people the science, we're desperate. Did, did you know this animal yes. did, you know, this animal produces yeah. this many eggs, but that's not a fact that the average person is going to take away. If you fold that into a story where people relate to, you know, the characters, the individuals, maybe that's what works. And that is now a standard technique used across natural history. Scientists te have tended to be a little bit aloof about it. It's like, we'd rather you didn't do that. But I think increasingly it's recognized, especially in the modern day and age, given what we're all concerned about. The primary thing is you want people to care about the natural world. You want them to relate to it, to emote with it. And if it means, if it means to the average person, oh yeah, I remember that story about the lions because it was really sad that there was a drought and most of them died, you know, mm -hmm. Bit of a downer example, sorry, but you want people to remember that story. So we unashamedly use that technique in Prehistoric Planet, and it's how people will remember uh, specific stories. And of course, in telling stories, the very nature of the medium means that we, as I think we've we've already touched on this, you you have to go beyond what's only represented by the evidence. You have to speculate to what I think is a reasonable amount. I don't think there's anything we did that's above and beyond you know, what we would consider uh, plausible or possible for extinct animals. And I'm absolutely thrilled to say that you know, having worked closely over the course of this series with Sir David, he is absolutely on board with that as well. Getting him to be involved in Prehistoric Planet was a major coup. He hasn't done this kind of TV show before, and he understood exactly what we were doing and absolutely loved it. And it was a real pleasure to see him um, sometimes learn things that were new to him or get to learn more it's just phenomenal to talk to him because, of course, over the course of his career, <laughs> uh, he's basically he's seen all this stuff already. Mm -hmm. He's, he's mm -hmm. met all the people. Mm -hmm. And every, every mm -hmm. single time I would start talking to him about a specific case, he was like, well, yeah, I met that guy in 1970. Or I was at that dig site in 1981. Or, yeah, I filmed that in 1985. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah, of course you were, David. Yeah, <laughs> I forgot. So, um. <laughs> I mean, you were talking earlier. It was like the flamboyant displays. I... I I immediately pictured him with the birds of paradise above him dancing. I just, I always remember that, that sequence with him. And, and I'm very fortunate to have a handwritten letter where he said I, he wouldn't come on the podcast because he doesn't do computers, <laughs> but he was very, very gracious to handwrite a letter back. That was, I have it framed and will go down as one of my treasures in life. Uh, but he is a living treasure for everybody. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. The, the other thing, too, it, I hope I'm getting across to the listeners, is the level of detail. Uh, in the the animals and the producers and the animators it is like nothing i've ever seen i mean just talking to the big beast producers i was like the filmmaking today and wildlife documentaries are so intimate 
you're so close to the animals, you feel like you're walking next to them or you can smell them almost. I felt that with this documentary. So one of the, one of the sequences in there, and, and, and they make a, a return in a few of the episodes is the velociraptors. Gorgeous. I mean, absolutely gorgeous animals, not like anything you imagined in Jurassic Park or Jurassic World. Feathers. And I, I, I had to go research the past. Why do they have feathers compared to what we see in, in Jurassic World, that movie that just came out a couple of years ago with Velociraptor, scaly reptilian? They look completely different in Prehistoric Planet, but that's probably what they looked like, right? In, in, yeah. in that series, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you, you give me one of my favorite subjects to talk about. And <laughs> before I launch into it, yeah, I mean, what I should say, I must say, what, what you were saying there about the the complexity and the detail of what we show. I mean, that is, is over 1,500 people were involved in the making of Prehistoric Planet. And obviously we've got, you know, the top end of the best people in the business in terms of the the CG that we see, our amazing team at MPC and, you know, what they're able to do is just unbelievable. But then the advances in camera technology, the things that camera operators at the BBC Natural Unit are able to do, well, you've seen the results. Mm-hmm. So feathers on non-bird dinosaurs. Now this is this is a fascinating subject because I have to be careful in terms of like not disrespecting uh, other other people and other franchises. Yeah. But yeah. but it's it's amazing how res- how much resistance there's been to the, depicting this this look for dinosaurs, which is absolutely technically correct, which is absolutely confirmed by unassailable, undisputable, you know, non-disputable scientific evidence because, okay, so it's been widely accepted, like essentially universally accepted among relevant scientists since about the late 1960s, the birds are dinosaurs. Archaeopteryx, you know, this early bird from the Jurassic, it's very difficult to distinguish it from, you know, closely related small predatory dinosaurs that are now known from many locations worldwide. And given how similar they are, and given that we know for sure that Archaeopteryx is feathered, as are other archaic birds, people have been saying for a long time, going all the way back to the 60s, wouldn't, shouldn't you put feathers on these really similar early, you know, sort of bird-like dinosaurs? It's, it's, a, it's an absolutely a good idea. And it kind of came to the fore in the 1980s due to a number of key influential publications, in particular, Greg Paul's Predatory Dinosaurs of the World, the benchmark <laughs> work. In uh, our visualization of dinosaurs, Greg Paul and other researchers are saying it's probably wrong to show a dinosaur like Velociraptor scaly skinned. It probably should be fully feathered. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually, you know, part of the sort of generation that grew up with that view of dinosaurs. It's like I've been drawing feathers on dinosaurs, thinking it was absolutely correct, you know, as a kid, uh, since I was a kid. And I've always been slightly frustrated by sort of more senior people than me saying, nah, come on, where's the evidence? The evidence is good enough. And I'm pretty sure the evidence is good enough. So when in the mid-1990s from Liaoning province in northwest China, this succession, there's literally thousands now of feathery non-bird dinosaurs, velociraptor-type dinosaurs, thousands of specimens, when they started coming in, now now it's wide, now it's mainstream. There's like no possibility you could be uh, skeptical about it. Now, of course, the fossil record is our great um, you know limiter in terms of um, what 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 we know. And for 
so Lioning Province, it just so happens that the animals there are buried in fine volcanic ash. They had horrible deaths, <laughs> a bit of a bit mm-hmm. of a grim story, but uh they have all their soft tissues preserved. They have all their feathers preserved. They have skin preserved. Sometimes they have internal organs and eyeballs preserved. That anything is po- anything can be preserved if it gets you know entombed fast enough with minimal decay. But that's rare in the fossil record. So the similar dinosaurs and uh, uh, there's other animals. There's loads, so many animals at lioning. Those animals where you find them elsewhere in the world are not as well preserved. So there's many dinosaurs like those of lioning, and an example would be Velociraptor from Mongolia where there's no soft tissue preservation. So it's thanks to, they're called Lagerstatten, these places where you have exceptional preservation and you learn all this new stuff. It's thanks to Lagerstatten that we can be absolutely sure, as I've said, we'd be comp- we were confident anyway, but that confirms that Velociraptor and King were fully feathered. So even in places of the world, like Mongolia, like many parts of North America, uh, like Australia, there's a few bits and pieces of dinosaurs in places, you know, like, like New Zealand. Um mm-hmm. Then uh, yeah, you can be absolutely sure those dinosaurs would have been like those other ones. They would have been fully feathered, and and we know exactly the arrangement of feathers that they've got as well. You don't just like throw feathers at them and just slap them on anywhere. Yeah. It's like yeah. these fossils are preserved well enough that we know the exact arrangement, the exact number, and even the microscopic structure of their feathers. All of that's incorporated into prehistoric planet. Exactly. So if if, if you want to see what dinosaurs truly most likely looks like because again we, we we don't have direct direct evidence but you watch this doc watch the series it, it's it's phenomenal and to take that one step further lips i've read i just saw this across my news feed a few weeks ago i i was i was looking you know listening to somebody talk about lips on t-rex and i was like what so mm-hmm. i did some you know some research and and I, and I listened to it a little bit and and i think you talked about it in one of your podcasts so when we talk about lips, it's not like human lips, but you know the the teeth not jutting out like a crocodile. Yeah, where's the evidence on that, or or what's the thought behind that? Yeah, yeah. Again, uh, a complex subject, which I must you must uh, stop me if I talk for too long. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So one of the problems with this subject is we don't have a name that really covers everything that we're talking about here. Because when you say lips, people they, people imagine big kissy yes, lips. Yeah, yeah. Whereas we're talking about skin that's sheathing the teeth, as you see in lizards and snakes predominantly. And uh, a classic example is Komodo dragon. If you can find a picture of a Komodo dragon skull, you'll be impressed with how like incredibly sort of toothy it is. Then look at the live animal and try and look for its teeth. You'll rarely see them. And for, again, this is not a new idea, for several decades now, a large number of people interested in restoring the life appearance of dinosaurs have said that based on the anatomy of living reptiles like Komodo dragons and other lizards, based on the bone surface texture that you see on uh, predatory dinosaurs, and in fact all, all dinosaurs, it looks likely that these animals had lizard-like, air quotes, lips. It looks like they mm-hmm. had skin sheathing their teeth, and we probably shouldn't give them this kind of like crocodile-like sort of super gnarly toothy mm-hmm. look. Mm-hmm. And then, wait a minute, crocodiles and alligators are aquatic and their teeth are permanently kept wet. Could it be that they're actually unusual? Their faces are very unusual relative to those of dinosaurs. Not just having unsheathed teeth and no lips, but having a tightly fitting skin. And in crocodiles, their faces aren't scaly. They're covered by a single kind of keratinous sheath that cracks according to the underlying bony surface all of which is very different from what's seen in dinosaurs. They are not playing that game. They're doing something quite different. 
So yeah, I'm part of Team Lips for dinosaurs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I always, always have been basically. And so this new study that was published this year, 2023, mm-hmm. about looking that was about looking at tooth microsurface mm-hmm. uh, texture, micro texture on the surface, I should say. Yeah, that is a pretty good additional indication that their the teeth were sheathed. But we at Prehistoric Planet were kind of, you know, ahead of the curve on that. It's like we'd already mm-hmm. made a decision to go that yeah. way based on these other lines of evidence. So yeah, 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 yeah. Like you said, many years in the making, and and I just that just like you said that paper that was that's what came across my feed, and and I found that very interesting. You mentioned New Zealand, and and I have to give a shout out to to my good friend Rachel. Her father, uh, William Mosley, was part of the discovery of a Turangisaurus. Yeah, who, wow. ma- who make he makes yeah. He said, so I was talking to her about it the other day. And she's like, "Did you know my dad discovered that dinosaur?" I was like, "What?" I'm like, "I'm I'm, I'm talking to, to Doctor Nash in a couple of days." So it, it he uh, he discovered it here in New Zealand, and that was in I think episode two, uh, the the aquatic one in season one, and it was it was amazing looking at that, and and it brought me to ask you, why did they get included? Like, what were some of the choices? We obviously had to have T-Rex and some of the other big ones that people recognize, but something like uh, Turangisaurus from New Zealand or Zealandia, as mm. uh, Sir David mentions in, in the documentary, what was the selection process like with some of those dinosaurs? Oh, yeah. So uh, I'm going to correct you, first of all. So um, Turangisaurus is an elasmosaur. Elasmosaurs are a group of plesiosaurs and plesiosaurs, they ain't dinosaurs. There's another <laughs> group of animals. Yeah. So at the, at yeah. the same yeah. time as there's been this revolution happening in our thinking about Mm -hmm. dinosaurs Mm -hmm. there's been a parallel revolution happening in our thinking about the marine reptiles that lived at the same time as dinosaurs and i've actually just published a book it's nothing to do with prehistoric planet it's called ancient sea reptiles that does well the best job i could do on bringing to the public this like there's this revolution in what we understand about plesiosaurs and the other marine Mm -hmm. reptiles of the time they were incredible animals doing so much incredible stuff we had to focus on that in Prehistoric Planet. If we're going to do episodes on coasts, as we had in season one, and the open ocean, as we have in season two, we have to show how remarkable plesiosaurs, the great swimming reptiles, the mosasaurs are um, as as well. You know, we've we've got to we've got to uh, showcase those guys. They're mm-hmm. as remarkable as dinosaurs. Now, in choosing, in coming up with stories slash sequences for a TV show like prehistoric planet again i think this is a a absolutely understandable absolutely permissible thing you have to do in making tv shows you have to have a balance of stories because you can't have every story showing the same thing you've got to show you know this is a hunting story this is a courtship story this is a story about sleep or whatever you know you know what i mean and you also want to if it's a global series as of course prehistoric planet is you also try as best you can to give some sense of you know, environments all around the world at the time. So in doing our our uh, maritime uh, episodes, mm-hmm. yeah, we want to be moving around the world. Now, this is uh, always complicated when featuring the fossil record because various quirks of Earth history and our own history, you know, human history, various quirks mean that we know some parts of the world intimately and others, nothing about it at all, and others, tiny bit, uh, you know, a tiny bit. It just so happens, and I don't know how well how, how well you know this, but the late Cretaceous marine reptile fossil record for New Zealand 
is is actually pretty good. It's not bad. You've mm-hmm, got a whole mm-hmm. bunch of mosasaurs and plesiosaurs. So we're like, yes, we've got to show some of those animals from basically the sort of Southwest Pacific, this uh, Zealandian province. Yeah, in 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 the Lake Cretaceous, what we what we term Zealandia was rather different from uh, the the modern distribution of land masses mm-hmm. in uh, in that part of the world. But yeah, we we need to show that. And if we're going to show that, which animals do we know best? And Tyrangisaurus, uh, these big marine reptiles, as you'd expect, based on marine mammals and sharks and whatnot, they're very rarely in a small area. They're, the whole mm-hmm. ocean is their playground, right? Mm-hmm. So Tyrangisaurus is known from South America as well as New Zealand. And we've got individuals of different ages. We've got a juvenile one as well as an adult one. So straight away, you've got the core of a story there. You've got yep. like a really cool South Pacific-ish animal and you've got growth sequences combine that with what we know in general about elasmosaurs and combine it with the fact that we're trying to show diversity you know different locations around the world um very happy to have included it yeah yeah no thank you yeah thank you for uh for for showing us down here in in new zealand Uh, we're never forgotten the one thing i want to mention too is the way this this film was made or, or the series was made the 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 film crews would go out and film biomes you know the the volcano one was really cool you know and 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 the how it was all made so just so the listeners know it's not all cgi or any of that it's actually real biomes around the planet i know costa rica was a big big part of that uh, especially some some difficulties with covid so you get swamps deserts oceans where do we go in season two where some of the the big places that that were filmed and and dinosaurs are now popping up, <laughs> mm, well, and plesiosaurs and all the other ones. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna restrict the information I give you here because uh, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm not yet sure about <laughs> what what I'm allowed to say about specific locations. Yeah. But yeah, uh, I mean, uh, among the earliest steps involved in coming up with our sequences is where can we film mm. that that is okay in terms of uh, you know climate. The shape of the habitat, shape of the environment, the flora—that's that's a, a key thing for depicting uh, life in the Lake Cretaceous. And enormous research is done on specific locations. Enormous research is done on what the weather would be like, uh, what what we can and can't show. So, if there's aspects of the the weather and climate that you think really is that right, it's like, well, we're this team of paleoclimatologists led by Professor Bob Spicer. Alexander Farnsworth and Paul Valdez, Valdez as well. They did this like the most complex paleoclimate model for the Lake Cretaceous that's ever been done. They will publish it eventually. At the moment, it's unpublished. And they could answer any question that we had about precipitation, mm-hmm. storminess, wind and wave conditions, daily temperatures. You know, we had all that. So we combine all these things in choosing locations and we go out and film cool stuff. Appropriate locations is it's also you know we want it to look beautiful we want it to look we want it to look nice and then at some of these locations you then have to fight to get not literally you have to make sure that modern animals and inappropriate plants aren't included and I think I'm allowed to say that does mean that sometimes we have to CG out the mm-hmm. things that are inappropriate or modify them to like we're gonna. We we accidentally caught these birds in shot. Can we pretend yeah. they're Lake Cretaceous birds? No, they've got to go. <laughs> they got to go. They, yeah, they've got to be changed. In other cases, yes, they can be retained. So so yeah yeah. There's the, all this. A lot of research is done on choosing our locations and working in them. Yeah, they're, they're beautiful. I mean, it, it is beautiful. But I know in season two, it's 
It's swamps, North America, oceans, uh, the Badlands, and islands. So you need to check it out if you're listening. It's just such an incredible series. Now, I need to do a special mention. So the other day, we recorded our our episode on the Goliath Frog. And uh, listening to to your podcast on on frogs, I, I, I jumped in and listened to what you had to say about them. So when I I do the evolution, I always like to go back and find like some crazy largest of or smallest of. And so the Goliath frog, you know, pretty massive frog, the largest frog on earth. And I, I did Bezel Bufo and I talk about my podcast. So then that night, just a couple hours later, I put on prehistoric planet and there pops up Bezel Bufo, Mm -hmm. (laughs) the devil toe, devil frog. Why did you include that? And and it, and it makes a, reappear, a reappearance in season two with a little bit more of a storyline. So I was very excited to see that. I was like jumping up and down and I called my podcasting partner. I was like, look, Bezel Poopo. How could we not include it? I mean, this uh, relatively recently discovered giant late Cretaceous Madagascan frog, which is of a body form that in the frogs that have the same body form, Today, uh, yeah, the, the South American, uh, the sometimes called Pac-Man frogs in the pet trade, mm-hmm, yeah, the, mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. South American horned frogs and the um, pixie frogs, that's the giant um, African uh, bull, so-called bullfrog. It's not really a proper bullfrog, but uh, all of these guys are basically ambush sit-and-wait predators. They're basically like a mouse <laughs> with some small limbs. They sit and a mouse or a baby bird or a lizard or a smaller frog goes by, bam, you know, and you've got an animal of that form, of that, um, you know, habit, lifestyle that's living in an environment where there's like dinosaurs and where there's dinosaurs, there's baby dinosaurs. Uh, an interesting thing about dinosaurs is the bulk of the dinosaur population at any time is mostly made up of babies. So if you've got, as you have in the Madagascan fossil record, if you've got dinosaurs that are about person sized, then there would have been babies that are about, I don't know, the size of like a mid-sized chicken, kind of like yeah, 20 centimeters long, 15 centimeters long. It has, it was said as soon as Bielsa Bufo was published that this guy, this big frog, it's going to be predating on things like baby dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. No direct evidence for that because Bielsa Bufo is not, you know, there's nothing like stomach contents. In fact, there are hardly any stomach contents for any fossil frog. And there are many, many fossil frogs known from the fossil record. But, um, so yeah, a big fat frog that skulks in the mud and eats baby dinosaurs. Again, it's like it's become one of the stars of the series. It's like how how I think it's a a definite win that we did include it, right? So how yeah. could we not be a remarkable animal? Yeah, no, it was I was yeah, it was exciting. And then the modern Goliath frog, you know, they're they're endangered there in Africa, but uh, just amazing relative of them. I just I was I was jumping up and down when I saw that one. That was so fun. Now, just a couple more questions because I I know we're running out of time. The one, and you brought this up in in the Prehistoric Planet podcast. And again, listen to that one. It's fascinating, the behind the scenes making uh, making of the series. Uh, Dreadonautus, so sauropod. So I'm learning my dinosaurs. My my podcasting partner, she's she's asleep in Florida. She'd be correcting me left, right, and center. Uh, She's big into dinosaurs. In season one, you talked about the the sequence of this mass not gathering mass gathering and the males fighting and you know kind of like giraffes and how they're fighting but the one that really got me is these air sacs in the neck that blew up 
uh, that that they would inflate. And I had some empathy for you when you talked about you go to conferences and have to defend some of these things. <laughs> I know I'm like, oh my goodness, I can only imagine all the flack you take. I, I know how scientists are. I know how we think. And uh, had so much empathy, and I was laughing when you said that. But there's some evidence that 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 might have been. I mean, you talk about you know some other species that do that today. So what was the thought with okay, we're going to include this? My neck's on the line, literally, you know, figuratively. figuratively. So, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That that flack at conferences uh, that's half serious. It was one yeah, of no. the co-describers of that animal, um, uh, Doctor Matt Lamana. Uh, he just he just jokingly said, "Oh, thanks a bunch," you know, <laughs> now, because it now means he at Dreadnoughtus is quite a famous dinosaur published pretty recently, something like 2019, I think. And um, so I think every time they talk to the public, they now have to people say, "Did it have balloons on its neck?" And they're like, "Well, I mean, yeah." My justification for it is it's it's speculative, but it does tie into you know what I what I said earlier about um. Dinosaurs were flamboyant animals, and among the things that they quite probably used are structures that aren't preserved in the fossil record, things like inflatable neck sacs. Now, there's actually a a fairly long-running academic argument, many technical papers on this, over the function of the sauropod dinosaur neck. Why did they evolve these ridiculous necks among the most extreme necks that have ever evolved? It's almost certainly to increase their feeding envelope, to increase the range of you know food that's available to them without minimal energy expenditure. But if you have a remarkable, whacking great big structure like that, very few structures in the living world have a single function, a single role. They're sort of they're co-opted for other things, right? That's you know think of anything, and um, examples would be deer antlers, and elephant tusks, and and so on. They they they're used in multiple different ways, and it has been argued, and there's some possible evidence for this that the necks may have been used in visual display and it's also been argued that uh, based on the anatomy of the vertebrae that some of these long neck dinosaurs the sauropods some of them may have used the necks in fighting uh, actual like sort of pushing the bases of the necks together you know actually in combat now combine everything i've just said with the most annoying trope that exists about uh, large plant-eating dinosaurs, it is that it's the gentle giant trope, which is regularly said by paleontologists and people that know about animals. It's like this idea, which is promoted here and there. I think I think it's actually said a couple of times in Jurassic Park, the first Jurassic Park. These animals are gentle and friendly. It's like you know, if you know animals, are elephants, are wild elephants gentle and friendly? Are wild like bison and moose and are they the gentle friendly animals that are your friends no they're the ones that will throw you in the air and stomp you to death and they are quite aggressive they uh, they throw their weight around they're routinely aggressive to other members of their species where appropriate and to other animals and uh again thinking that we want to build an interesting story that kind of you know challenges people's expectations gives you something exciting to take away and remember we again so unashamedly wanted to encapsulate that in a story can we show sauropods as these aggressive really dangerous fighting animals that may well have been you know elaborate and showy so yeah you know none of us involved in this i, I worked closely with with a, a a filmmaker called nick lyon and actually building this this story a lot of it was based on his experience with african mammals and lecking behavior 
because can we bring all those things together and you know give the audience something something phenomenal and something new and i think we succeeded but you know i'm not ashamed to say yeah we don't know for sure they did that this is a possibility and it's remember what we show for dreadnoughtus is restricted to dreadnoughtus we don't show it in our, in our other sauropods because that should be the case in the living world what yeah. goes for one species doesn't go for all members of a group so yeah. Yeah, I can survive the uh, the beatings I get at conferences. <laughs> I just haven't been there, done that, been there, done that. So I I get it, I get it. And, and just uh, before I ask, get to my last question. It, you know that awe it, for all of us that are that are older. And I remember seeing Jurassic Park, the original in the theater. The awe of that of that uh, scene where they get out of the jeep and it's a brontosaurus. I don't know. It was one of the sauropods, right? And I remember as you know, young adult going, oh my goodness, that is incredible. That's how I felt with Prehistoric Planet. I'm, I'm, I'm just not to say, hey, I'm promoting this and having you on for, you know, Apple TV Plus and all that. Like, I literally jaw dropping. Wow. I went out and subbed right away. <laughs> I'm like, this is, that's how I felt that, that awe watching uh, all of these play out on, on my TV. So, what's next for you? Uh -huh. Um, yeah, the, the dinosaur in Jurassic Park was Brachiosaurus. Brachiosaurus. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, look, oh my God. I mean, having been involved in this from the start and seen, seen these sequences at every step of the process, I, I did think, uh, this is my 200th watch of the sequence. Am I not going to get bored? But no, I still get the same feeling of awe. You know, when I see like the Dreadnought sequence on the big screen, you know, tears in my eyes, man. Um, what's next? Well, I can't say, obviously, yeah. but Prehistoric Planet Season 1 has been very successful. People have liked it. So far, Season 2, it looks like it's a great success and people like it. So, fingers crossed. The Obviously, the prehistoric universe is vast. We have so far only scratched the surface. You know, we've only focused on that tiny bit of time, mm -hmm. the, the Maastrichtian at the end of the late Cretaceous. It's obvious that even just in the Maastrichtian, there's still loads more we could do with the animals we have. There's loads of other animals we could we could feature. There's the rest of the Cretaceous. There's the rest of the age of dinosaurs. Dinosaurs are latecomers in the history of life. So mm -hmm. again, I think a lot of people think that they're like the first animals. No, no, no. They they appeared late. They're like recent additions to the roster of life. There's tons of stuff before dinosaurs. Loads of things. There's a whole group of a massive group, hundreds of species of animals that are called stem mammals, the kind of like prototype ancestors of mammals that happened before the age of dinosaurs. There's all those guys. Then obviously after the late Cretaceous extinction event, there's the so-called age of mammals when you've got all those sort of modern groups evolving and diversifying in environments very different from those of today. Yeah, we'd love to make series about all of those, but you know, stay tuned, watch this space basically, yeah. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. And 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 if you do do season three or something else, I'd love to have you back on. I mean, I got to half my questions. Like I said, there, there's just so much more. I would, I'd love to learn. And I did learn a lot. I, I learned a lot about uh, these animals and wow. So thank you so much for being on Prehistoric Planet. It's streaming on Apple TV Plus. Go watch it. it done. I mean, that's all I can say about it uh, to our listeners. You will thank me. You will go, wow, thank you, Chris, <laughs> you know, for uh, for making me uh, go see it because it, it, it is that incredible. And I just fell in love with it. And I will. I'll watch it again. I, I, I guarantee it. I've, I've watched a few of these sequences uh, over and over because I was just so amazed. 
So thank you so much, Darren, and uh, take care. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot.